Well, let me invite you guys to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 22. And if you're visiting with us and don't have a copy of the Bible, let me offer you one. It should be on the back of the pew in front of you. Uh, we'd love for you to have that as our gift to you. And you'll find what we're going to look at today on page 255. As you're turning over there, I'll just say that we are coming out of uh, three or so months of slow walking through the stories of First and Second Samuel, some of the most important and foundational stories in Israel's history about how they got a king in the first place and what kind of king they got when they got King David. And now, having finished up that series, the timing is actually pretty nice because here we go into the Christmas season when, when there's a lot more focus than usual on what it means that Jesus came to the world. As a king, a Messiah, a Christ, a, an anointed one. What, what promises drove him into the world to fulfill them? And so coming out of the first and second Samuel series, now for the next few months or weeks together, what we want to do is, is actually unpack several different biblical songs about the coming king. Songs that are written out of Israel's expectation that a king like David would come again. A king even greater than David. Songs that helped them sing their way into hope and greater clarity about, about what God had set in front of them so that they could hold on in faith until he came through on all that he'd promised. We're going to be looking uh, at, at several songs, including a couple of psalms and the song that Mary sang when Jesus was announced to her. And we're going to start all that off today by lifting out the final song that David sings as a summary of his whole life included as a kind of bookend to the stories of 1 and 2 Samuel, a summary of, of this great king and of what he experienced from God during his reign. 2 Samuel chapter 22 works like a summary. Put to the very end of, the, of, of this story of David's rise to power and what his reign was like to make sure we get the right point from the whole story. And I got a lot more to say about that. I have to set things up, up this morning. But before I go any further, I want to first just read David's summary of David's summary. I want to read for you the first four verses of 2 Samuel chapter 22. And I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. This is the word of the Lord. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said... The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. This is God's word. You can be seated. I think the best way to understand what this long song is doing here in this book is to see it as an example of a really common practice in the ancient world, something that's known as a royal inscription. All over the world, in museums that have good artifacts from ancient times, if you ever get a chance to go into some of these old collections and look through some of the antiquities that archaeologists have dug up over the years, one of the most common things that you'll see in those collections are what are known as royal inscriptions. Uh, we still have a ton of these because big, powerful kings made sure that, that, that summaries of their reign were, were taken down on materials that weren't likely to perish. 
Things like clay tablets etched in just incredible exotic microscopic script. Things like sometimes entire walls made of rock that have been carved into the scenes that are then described in the text underneath. You'll find these things all over the place. And, And the reason they're still here is that it mattered to these kings that generations to come after them would know how awesome they were. That was the point of these royal inscriptions. They're always about accomplishments. They're always about the the, the battles that were won, the peoples who were conquered. They're always about the character qualities that that made the king what they were. Take, for example, Sargon. He's one of the big shots of the ancient Assyrian world. We have a, a, a lot of records about this particular king, but there's one particular inscription that's really long, and I'm just going to read you a couple examples out of what he had to say. Here's some choice lines for you from Sargon's summary of his reign. Sargon, the great king, the powerful king, the king of the world, the strongest of all princes, the king who from the day of his accession had not rival prince and in contest in battle did not find a superior, who dashed to pieces all the lands like pots and enslaved the four quarters of the world, who explored mighty mountains without number and found a way through them, a man full of courage, fearless of opposition, the powerful one, perfect in might and strength, who subjugated the stubborn Medes, the prudent king full of noble plans, the king open to suggestion with clear insight, who grew up in wise counsel and matured in diplomacy. And I could go on because Sargon certainly did. And it all sounds about like that. I'm leaving out a lot of the juiciest parts. And and what Sargon described, the way he described his reign, that was just super typical. You'll find these in royal inscriptions all over the ancient world. So I like to imagine coming to this one, to David's summary of his reign, I like to imagine David as part of a circle of ancient kings having an icebreaker to start their conversation. And, And they're just going around one by one, introducing themselves. What should we know about you? And Sargon takes his turn and he waxes on like he just did. I'm the great king, the powerful king, the king of the world. I crush people like pots. I'm, I have courage and fearless of opposition. I am, well, you, heard, you heard his list. Two or three other kings go on in the same manner, one by one. And then they come to David. David, tell us about you. We know you're the greatest king in Israel's history. What makes you so awesome? And you can hear David kind of thinking to himself, hmm, what's it all about me? I guess if, uh, if I were to sum it up, put a real fine point on it, chapter 22, verse 4, I call upon the Lord, that's me, and he saves me. What you ought to know about me, when I zoom out and look at my whole life, is that I call upon the Lord and the Lord saves me. It's powerful, isn't it? And the point of an inscription like Sargon's is that there's never gonna be another stud like me. That's what he wants you taken away from his inscription. Don't try this at home. Just do yourself a favor and accept you can't touch this. But, But the point of David's royal inscription of his summary of his whole life story. The point of David's story is that the same God who saved me will save you too if you call on him like I did. Anyone can get in on what this God offers. 
anyone who's willing to cry out. Anyone can get in on a rock that you can stand on, a fortress that you can hide in, a deliverer who comes to life when you need him most and fights your battles for you. That's who I found. That's who you'll find. And so the song that David sings from that summary, those first four verses all the way to the end of the chapter, raises and answers the key question I want to unfold with you this morning. If the whole point of it is, I called on the Lord and he saved me. If you call on the Lord, he'll save you too. The question it raises is, who does the Lord save? Who does the Lord save? What will need to be true of me for me to experience what David did? After the opening summary verses, those first four, David moves into what he saw God do for him throughout his life. And there are four places along the way where he profiles for us who it is that God acts to save. In in verses 5 to 20, he shows us that God saves those who are desperate. God saves those who are desperate. In verses 21 to 27, He shows us that God saves those who are faithful. God saves those who are faithful. In verses 28 to 49, he shows us that God saves those who are humble. God saves those who are humble. And in verses 50 and 51, he points us forward and shows us that God saves those who are in Christ. Those are our four steps for this morning. Step number one. The Lord saves those who are desperate. Let me show you where David was, what God did, and what it means for you. Starting in verses 5 and 6. The waves of death, David writes, encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. David begins his life summary with an unmistakable window into his greatest weakness and his deepest need. He doesn't tell us here exactly what time or circumstances he had in mind. Maybe he's thinking of lots of times in his life when he felt like this. But what he does tell us is what he felt at his most vulnerable. He felt completely overwhelmed. These images are so powerful, aren't they? Verse 5, death coming at him like a wave. Destruction carrying him along like a torrent that he can't resist. A rushing river at flood stage. The the place of the dead, Sheol, grabbing him and entangling him like like a cord, like, like like the tentacles of a mighty crack and wrapping up a ship and pulling it down into the sea. And death had him in its grip like an animal in a snare. Can you think of better images for what it feels like to be overwhelmed in life? Can you relate to what David is describing here? Have you ever felt so tossed around by what you're facing that you don't know what hits are coming next or from what direction? And like you're just at the mercy of whatever is around the next bend. I've felt that way, have you? Have you ever felt... Like your life was just carrying you along. Like you're just being swept by a rushing torrent you can't swim against because it's too powerful and can't get out of because it drags you down. 
always headed somewhere you don't want to go. Have you ever felt suffocated by life? Like, like, like you can't get a breath, almost feeling it as a, as a heaviness on your chest, like a deer wrapped up in an anaconda. Have you, have you felt so stuck in patterns that you know are destructive? That you can see the destruction in your own life, in the life of the people around you. You know it's not good, but you just keep doing it because you feel like an animal stuck in a snare and you don't know how to get out. Have you felt, can you relate to being overwhelmed the way David was? It's incredible to me that the first thing David wants you to know about his life is not that he conquered Israel's enemies and made peace in the land. It's not that he established Israel's capital in Jerusalem and fortified a mighty palace or conquered an evil giant and chopped off his head. He doesn't start with any of that stuff. The first thing he wants you to know about his life is that he was utterly, completely, inescapably overwhelmed and too weak to do anything about it for himself. Too weak to do anything but cry out. And if you can relate, you need to see what happens next. You need to see what God did. David's only move in his distress is to call upon the Lord. This is verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. And from his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry came to his ears. And what happens when the voice of one God loves reaches the ears of God in his temple? Well, I like to think about what happens next as if it were packaged up with some 21st century special effects and dished out in a summer blockbuster. Read with me, verse 8. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. God moves heaven and earth to help the one who's desperate enough to call out to him. The anger that he feels at seeing what's done to his beloved, it shakes the ground. David imagines him as this fire-breathing dragon. Did you see the dragon in all of this? Riding on the wings of the wind. He sees him as a hurricane or a cyclone wrapped up in darkness and with, with waters gathered around him in all their power. The streaks of lightning are his arrows in David's mind and heart. And with a breath, he parts the sea and makes dry ground. But perhaps the most important thing to know in this incredible picture of what God does comes in verses 17 and following. This God who shakes heaven and earth sent from on high and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, 
from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. and He rescued me because he delighted in me. The first thing you need to know about me is what God did when I had nowhere else to turn. That's David's point. All this incredible language. David is drawing on the language of, of what theologians call a theophany, an appearance of God in God's world, in the things that he made, taking them onto himself to reveal himself to his people. And in fact, David's echoing the Exodus story where things played out a lot like this. Some of these, some of these signs are not just like metaphorical. They, they, they actually happened. The, the earth did shake when, he was, when God met with his people on Mount Sinai. And, and, and the foundations of the world were seen when he, at the bl- blast of the breath of his nostrils, parted the Red Sea so his people could walk through it on dry ground. David is, is applying the Exodus story to his life. Even if he didn't see these things happen with his own eyes, he's saying, the same God that delivered Israel delivered me every time. Every time I needed to call on him, he moved heaven and earth to help me. That's just who he is. He keeps on being that God. And he rules over all. Every part of nature is his to command. And all that means that his reach is not limited like mine is. His arm stretches further than mine. When I've got nowhere else to go, he keeps on going and going and going. No one is so far gone that this God can't reach him. Draw him out and put him in a safe place. David knows because David's been there. So what does it mean for you? What does it mean for you? Here's what it means for you. Let me make this as simple and hopefully as encouraging as I can make it. If you are desperate this morning, precisely because you're desperate, you have every reason to hope for God's help. To be desperate in God's economy is a good place to be. See, and I seeing things, the more desperate you are, probably the less likely somebody is able or willing to help you. The more desperate you are, the bigger the chance that whatever they might in good, with good intentions offer you isn't going to get the job done. And the bigger the chance that when they see how desperate you are, they'll be like, yeah, I can't get involved with that. I got problems of my own. I can't have you drowning me along with you. In our experience, desperation is the reason somebody pulls back. But with God, it works exactly the opposite. It's the polar opposite with God. God sees desperation as a reason to move in. Our desperation, when we call on him, activates his saving help. Our need draws him to us, never drives him away. He can handle us being desperately dependent on him. He likes it that way. The real question is, can we, can we handle that kind of desperate dependence? When I first started out as a pastor, one of the things that really intimidated me was the idea of counseling people facing their biggest challenges, especially because I had zero experience doing that. When I started this job, I was coming straight out of graduate school at Vanderbilt where the biggest crises I ever encountered was somebody who didn't get the paper they, they wanted or the grade they wanted on their final paper or thought that I'd misgraded their exam along the way. That was the crisis that I was used to facing. And, you know, real people have bigger problems than that. Not that students aren't real people, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, 
I was super intimidated. And, and it didn't take me long to realize I was right to be intimidated. Because life is brutal. And life doesn't get easier, usually. And life can be painful and more complicated than anybody can sort out. And early on especially, early on especially, I always felt the need to fix whatever it was that was wrong. Friends would come talk to me through what was going on. I would sit there just hoping that they would keep on talking <laughs> because I had no idea what I was going to say when they came up for air. Just keep going. And then I'm praying, Lord, just give me something. Just give me something usable here. I need something. I don't know what to do. I felt like I had to have something to say, something useful, something that would make a difference. So it didn't take me long to cling for dear life to some of the most important advice a mentor gave me early on about what to do, especially in the first counseling session you have with a friend who's in trouble. Priority number one, whatever else comes out of that session, make sure they know there's hope. Make sure you look them in the eye and you tell them there is hope. And since that time, it has been among the greatest privileges of my life to sit with many of you on some of your worst days. Maybe some of you are thinking about them right now. You're imagining us together on those worst days and you're remembering how important this advice really was, the fruit that it's born in your life. If we haven't had that chance together yet, let me go ahead and tell you now what I'll tell you then. And what I'm going to ask you to tell me when I need to hear it. I don't know how to fix it. I'm not sure where it's going. I don't have a plan to get us to the outcome we want to see. But Christ is risen. And God is working. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. His arm is not too short to save. He is not limited like we are. And you matter to him. And because of all those true things, there is hope today for you. You are not further gone than David was, and God is no less eager to help you than he was to help David. That is the counsel we need most when we're desperate, friends. When we're overwhelmed from life, that's what we need to hear. Of course, what we want are solutions. Of course, that's what we want. What we crave is a plan, something we can control and manage. But what we need is a person. What we need is a Savior who lives and reigns. We need a God who is active and always ready to move heaven and earth to save those who call on him. That's what we need. I'm not saying we don't need a plan. Of course we need wisdom. Of course finding some things to, to, to do matters. And the Bible has a lot to say. I'm saying don't put your hope in any plan that isn't going to require God to show up in your life. That isn't going to require a theophany. God to breathe coals of fire out of his mouth and to ride on the wings of the wind and to raise the dead. Don't settle for any plan where prayer is optional. Because when you're desperate, the most powerful move you can make is to call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and see if he doesn't save you from all your enemies.
The Lord saves those who are desperate. That's number one. Second piece of this profile David gives us, we saw hinted at in verse 20. The second piece of the profile of the one that God saves, the Lord saves those who are faithful. David in verse 20 said that the Lord rescued me. Why? Because he delighted in me. That's what David says. The point you can write down is that the Lord saves those who are faithful. But we got work to do to see this point clearly. Let me read to you the, the verses that follow David's description that, describe, that tell us why God delighted in David in the first place. And see if you don't notice the questions they raise for me. Verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely, and with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. What's this about? Maybe it's just the time of year and the sort of songs we've been playing around our house lately, but when I read those verses and I hear how David describes the way that the Lord treated him throughout his life, the Lord sounds a little more than a little bit like Santa Claus to me. He sees you when you're sleeping, He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good. For goodness sake, just be good. Santa Claus deals with you according to your righteousness. Santa Claus rewards you for the cleanness of your hands. With the nice, Santa shows himself generous, making it rain. With the naughty, Santa keeps that red velvet bag tied up tight. With Santa, it's tit for tat. Is that how God works? Let me put a question to it. What if I'm desperate, like we just talked about, but I'm not righteous? Can I call on him then? What is David getting at? We should be asking that question. But we should also be wondering, who does David think he is? Because <laughs> we, if you've been with us this fall, we've been tracking with this guy's life story. Cleanness of hands would not be near the top of the resume I would write for David. Not by this point when we're summing things up. David is a notorious sinner. And this song was put here at the end of a story that ends in a spiral of destruction that was set in motion by what David did against God, against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against the people he's supposed to be leading by example. David was not clean. So what are we talking about here? On one level, I think what David is saying here is simply that God is just, that that he's thinking back on his life, especially his life in the wilderness when Saul was chasing him, even though he'd done nothing wrong, and David refused to kill Saul, even though he had a chance to. In that time, in that moment, which is part of the context for this song, David did what was right. He was just and God was just to him. God punished Saul for his sin against David, and he rewarded David for his faithfulness towards Saul. But there's a deeper level, I think, that David has in mind. 
When he talks about righteousness or faithfulness and keeping to the ways of the Lord, he's talking about life according to a covenant. David embraced God's covenant with God's people. And God did exactly what he said he would for his people who embrace his ways. God, when he chose Israel to be his special people in the world, gave Israel a whole set of laws, regulations to help with the relationship, to give it structure and purpose, to to guide them in how they were to live as those who had received grace from God. Those laws told them what God loves. They told them what, what pleases him. They were an invitation to trust that God knows best and to obey because you trust that about him. And those laws also said what to do when you don't obey when your sin does bring the need for a sacrifice. The law gave all sorts of sacrifices that were to be made to say, sin is serious, sin is my problem, and my only hope is the mercy of God. And David, even though he was a notorious sinner, did live his life faithful to the the terms of the covenant God had made with him. He embraced God's ways often, and when he disobeyed, He embraced the sacrifices God had put before him as the the way of restoring relationship to God. He lived his whole life in a peaceful relationship with God. That's what it means that the Lord delighted him. He wasn't sinless. He was faithful. That's what David means. Faith is the thread that ties this all together. It was faith that cried out to God as if God could do something about it. It was faith that confessed sin to God and cried for mercy as if God loves to give it. And it's faith that obeys God's commands as if he's worth trusting, as if what he says really is good. And it's faith that delights God, as the author of Hebrews chapter 11 says, without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and rewards those who seek him. And let me put a point on this. If you're overwhelmed by the weight of sin in your life, and you've not yet become a Christian, what I want to make sure is clear to you is that the message here is not to go out and do something good so God will owe you one. It's already too late for that. It's already too late for you to, 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 to buy God off. And that's not how God operates anyways. The starting point for becoming a Christian is knowing sin is a huge problem and it's my problem, not somebody else's problem. And if you can see that, then you're ready to see the message of the gospel. The heartbeat of the whole Bible is that God sent his own son to live and die in our place. Jesus, his son, he never did anything wrong. His hands really were clean all the way. His righteousness was completely perfect. But he took our sin on himself in his death so we could take credit for that life. Now, the gospel message is God deals with us according to Jesus' righteousness. He treats us according to the cleanness of Jesus' hands if we trust in him instead of ourselves. I know that sounds crazy. I know that's not how the world is supposed to work and that it may sound too good to be true. But that's the message of the gospel and we'd love to talk to you more about it if you have questions about what that means. If you're a Christian this morning and you're facing circumstances that feel overwhelming to you, and I think it's important to put David's point here right alongside the point that we just made about those who are desperate. Yes, it's true that God saves the desperate who call on him. And sometimes that's all you can do. That's all you can manage is just to cry out. He will hear you if you do that. But we need to see too that that God delights in faithfulness. It delights him when his children trust him enough to listen to what he says in his word and through obedience treat him like he's worth trusting. Which is to say, 
if you're feeling overwhelmed right now by what you're facing. One helpful step forward for you could be to ask a friend to help you look to the word to see if God has said anything there about what you ought to do next. To see if he has spoken to what faith in action would look like for your situation. Because if he's spoken to it, faith will look like more than just calling out on him to help you. It will look like following through on what he says will help you. It will look like treating his ways as if they're really good. One of my favorite books on Christian counseling, one of the most important uh, little assignments that's in it has to do with this, what, what this author, Paul David Tripp, calls the circles of responsibility. Looking at all the pieces to whatever it is that you're facing, whatever it is that's got you overwhelmed, and writing down all the things that bear on your situation and re- having one circle that says God's responsibility, he would have to do this. And another circle that says my responsibility. Here's what his word says I'm responsible for in this. It is not faith in God to neglect things he's made us responsible for as if all we had to do was call out for him and then just wait and see what happens. Faith in God is calling to him from desperation and then obeying him where he's been clear about what to do next. Maybe consider even this afternoon asking a friend to help you break down what you're facing with those two circles on your mind and see what the Lord may show you in his word. For now, point number three. We've said that the Lord saves those who are desperate and the Lord saves those who are faithful We also need to see that the Lord saves those who are humble. David states this plainly in verse 28. You, speaking to God, save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. David's just echoing here a partner song from the very beginning of 1 Samuel. That one was sung by Hannah, Samuel's mother. And it introduced all that was going to come in First and Second Samuel. All these stories. It was just laying out the themes like an overture for this big piece of music. And now David at the end of the story is looking back and singing the same song, same themes reproduced here. All focused on God being for those who know he's God and turn to him instead of to themselves or to anyone else. The whole book has been pointing this out to us one story after another. But I will admit that in this little section of David's song, it seems like David may have forgotten his own point. Pick back up with me in verse 29, and let's read through the next section of the song. David says, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the deer, the feet of a deer, and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've given me a shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. And did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so they didn't rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me seek under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he didn't answer them. 
I beat them, fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me as soon as they heard of me. They obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. That's a lot. And did you notice how this section of the song is littered with I statements of what David has done? I run up against a troop. I leap over a wall. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. I consumed them. I thrust them through. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. When they heard of me, foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. That sounds a little bit like Sargon, doesn't it? I'm that guy. Deal with it. And one Old Testament scholar I read even concedes that's what David is doing. He says, kings can defer to Yahweh only so long. Powerful people can't continually refer all the credit elsewhere or they'll finally lose their power, authority, and credibility. Is that what's going on? No, no, that entirely misses the point. David knows he defeated his enemies. He was there for that. David knows the sword was in his hand when Goliath's head came off his body. He knows he fought with his armies against the Philistines and the Ammonites and the Moabites and all the other ites who threatened his people. He's not denying that his hands went to work in those battles. But on top of it all, behind everything David did, he says that God saves the humble and not the haughty. How is David humble? It's because he knows that anything good in him and anything good through him comes from the Lord and aims at God's praise, not David's. Verse 30, by my God, I leap over a wall. Verse 35, he trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Verse 37, you gave a place for my steps so that my feet didn't slip. Verse 40, you equipped me with strength for the battle. Verse 41, you made my enemies turn their backs to me. Verse 49, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You, you delivered me from men of violence. It's what David said to Goliath way back near the beginning of David's life story. When Goliath came for him and threatened to squash him like a bug, before he put a rock into his sling and slung that rock at Goliath's head, he said, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. God saves the humble. And what makes David humble is that David knows there is no God but the Lord. There is no rock except our God. He knows God is God and he is not. And all the glory for any good in David goes to the God who makes him who he is and supplies every one of his needs. David knows, verse 47, the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me. The God who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the men of violence. David gives credit to the Lord. That's humility. Humility doesn't mean that you have to deny there's anything good in you. It means you got to be honest about where that good comes from and about who gets credit for it. 
And friends, learning to see your life like this is a wonderful preventive medicine for the times when you will be threatened to, be, to feel overwhelmed. If you cultivate humility, which is to say gratitude to God for anything good in you, for any strength or skill that you have, pointing that back to him as if it's his and not yours, you are preparing for the time when your strength runs out, when your skill can't get the job done, when you don't have what it takes. A while back, I, I read a, a memoir where a writer was sharing how she'd recovered from a, a low time by making a daily journal entry of what she did well. She called it a contributions list instead of a gratitude list. She said she had been using gratitude lists before because she could see the value in counting your blessings. But the problem with gratitude lists, she said, is that they're passive. It's a quote from the book. Gratitude makes us feel thankful for what we receive, but contributions, they're active. They build our confidence by reminding us that we can make a difference. Basically, I got it done last time, I'll get it done this time. But that kind of confidence is never gonna last, never. You are going to hit a mountain you can't climb. If in, instead of building confidence on your contributions, you have built humility by crediting God with anything good in you, then when you face a mountain too big to climb, what will you say? God got it done last time. He'll get it done this time too. When it comes from God, strength, skill, capacity, whatever, comes from a never-ending stream. You can trust him next time too. And all of this leads me to where I want to leave you this morning. The fourth piece to a profile looks forward. It's the last two verses of this wonderful song where David tells us that the Lord saves those who are in Christ. This song, which becomes Psalm 18, turns in the end from what was in David's life to what will be for David's offspring. Read verse 50 and 51 with me. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. David's pointing back to the promise from 2 Samuel 7, a promise that God was gonna put his Messiah, his anointed one on David's throne, that his steadfast love was never gonna come off of that man on his throne and that through this king on his throne, God would never leave his people either. He was gonna save them once and for all because of his steadfast love for this Messiah. And when the people of Israel took David's final words, his final psalm, and put them into their psalm collection, they took a song that was David's song and made it theirs. This was Israel's song, not just his. Because they knew that their life as a people was attached to his life as their king, that he stood for them, that what happened to him happened to them. Just like when he fought Goliath. And they knew this song wasn't just looking back, but, but looking ahead to what will be. That what will, God has promised will come through the king who will come from David's offspring and sit on David's throne forever. We sing now of that king to come. That's why they put it in their collection of songs. They were looking ahead to Jesus, the son of God who would put on our flesh and live and die and rise again to rescue us. I love the way Derek Kidner describes this. He says, every theme in this song gets new depth 
with Jesus. David has already told us that God can take on his world as his chariot, that the wings of the wind become his wings, that the the earth quakes with his anger, that he shows up in the world that he made. It is no huge leap to imagine him then putting on a body like ours, is it? And entering life like us. And in Jesus, the waves of death washed over him, just like they did David. The cords of hell wrapped around him and pulled him right down into the earth. In his distress, Jesus, he cried out to the Lord. And the Lord waited until his work was finished. But when it was, the earth reeled and rocked. The earth quaked and the graves gave up their dead. The Lord pulled his son from the grave and set him in a safe place at his right hand where he now waits until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And on that day, the sin that so easily now woos us and then wounds us, the death that terrifies us and stalks us and eventually tries to claim us, the powers that wield these things in this world to hurt us and lay us low, all of them are gonna be trampled by his feet, like the, like the mire of the streets. This song right here it is Jesus' song. He lived it. And because he did, we will too. His life, his death, his triumph, all ours. One day we'll sing this song right here to praise him among the nations with people of every tribe and tongue who've all come to know the same truth about the Lord who saves We'll sing on that day. The cords of death drug me down. They tied me into that grave for a time. But there is a greater power in this world that raised me up. And forever, our song will be, I called upon the Lord and he saved me from my enemies. From that day through all of eternity, we will sing, I called upon the Lord and he saved me from all my enemies. I called upon the Lord and he saved me from all my enemies. We will never get tired of singing that song. Why not start now? Why not start now? Let's call upon the Lord together now before we sing this song to him together. Oh, Father, we thank you for Jesus, for what you've done through your Messiah, to show your steadfast love to us. We pray now for the confidence that he has made possible for us, for a faith that won't be overwhelmed. And we pray that you would help us to honor you in how we embrace this wonderful message you've given to us through him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.